Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And um, if you've followed me for a while, uh, you might know that I I periodically look at um, British life during the the 1930s, various aspects of it. Um, And today we're diving back into Britain's War uh, by Daniel Todman. Um, The first volume of it is 1937 to 41. Um, And... Daniel Tobman gives us a, a big contextual picture of British life before the war, very, very detailed, uh, very, very rich and, and uh, uh, very, very uh, thorough. And in this section, he explores working class life. Um, uh, some time ago, uh, I was sort of almost worried to say how far back, I normally say a couple of podcasts ago, and it turns out it was like two years ago. Uh, but some time ago, I looked at the previous chapter of um, middle-class life uh, during the 30s. And um, here, here we look at uh, the, the, the lives of working-class people. And uh, Daniel Todman writes, Although the middle classes were expanding and dominant, the, UK's, uh, the UK remained an overwhelmingly working-class country. Three-quarters of the population depended on the income earned in waged labour. In terms of numbers, it was a nation of factory hands, machinists, transport workers, dockers, shop assistants, farm labourers and domestic servants. The working classes, too, uh, were changing as a result of the alterations in the economy. The percentage of the workforce employed in the staple industries fell during the 1930s as younger miners, shipwrights and mill workers left their hometowns for more certain jobs in the new manufacturing sectors. Across industry... The proportion of skilled workers was slowly declining as production line technology replaced artisanal aptitude. So this is one of the real real uh, interesting transitions during the 1930s. The Great Depression in uh, Great Britain is regionalised. So the areas where the staple industries of shipbuilding, cotton, uh, 
steel and coal had dominated, they were mainly um, hit hardest. Whereas areas where new light manufacturing industries were emerging seemed to be quite resistant to the Great Depression, and in some parts of the country, particularly Oxfordshire, for example, where there were new uh, the new motorworks, uh, Cowley, um, the uh, un- uh, employment actually rose. Um, in 1937, um, that, uh, the year of the coronation of George VI, uh, living standards actually increased um, by that point in the 1930s. Wages had risen um, after the First World War, um, and while working hours had declined, um, and the state's provision of welfare for the least well-off improved, it meant that working-class people in work had more money, uh, more leisure time, and a more um, robust safety net than previously they had had. The idea that we have about the 1930s of, of its uniform bleakness, actually, we have to make that more nuanced than... Um, by the, the by, 1937, of course, the Great Depression for Britain is over. It ends in you know 34, 35, and so in the second half of the 1930s, life is is in many ways is is improving uh, for for the poorest. Um, this didn't mean that working class people could enjoy the um, the luxuries of bourgeois life. Uh, they were unable to afford cars or the kinds of labour-saving devices in middle-class homes. Uh, Working-class people kind of were the labour-saving devices in middle-class homes. Um, the ability to uh, afford, if you're not even kind of service staff, but, uh, but a housekeeper or a cook, enabled a, uh, a middle-class housewife to be able to do good charitable works as they were um, socially and culturally um, uh, uh, pressured to do or sort of inclined to do and it was all done basically um, as a result of working class labour um, but disposable income meant um, a better diet clothes, home furnishings, cigarettes uh, transport, mainly bus travel or train travel uh, the ability to afford things like radios uh, bicycles, or um, to be more stable in uh, being able to pay pay rent. Um, in the 1930s, a, a mixture of better food, better housing, and advances in medical treatment meant that uh, across the board, for most working class people, health improved. There are some shocking stories in uh, Juliet Gardner's uh, The 30s, an intimate portrait, intimate history. Um, of malnutrition during the Great Depression, um, of uh, women um, particularly suffering, as what they would tend to do in uh, uh, highly recession-hit communities, is make sure that the husband and the children ate first. Um, the the rationale being well, that the husband is the breadwinner. Obviously, kind of... Uh, the sorts of values that we would find totally unacceptable today, but values that were entirely rational uh, and it seemed ent- entirely reasonable then. Um, 
And there is one story of an inquest of a woman who essentially just drops dead uh, from, not from um, acute malnutrition, but from ongoing and, and, and persistent uh, undernourishment um, and, uh, and really just uh, and perhaps congenital problems and, and, and dies. So, you know, this optimistic picture we must always um, balance uh, by the fact that this is talking really about the end of the 1930s, not the height of the Great Depression. The rate of infant mortality fell nationally from 76 per thousand live births per thousand live births in 1929 to 55 per thousand in 1938. Um, although the rate of maternal mortality in the 1930s was higher than it had been at the start of the century. Um, workers, uh, by and large, in 1937, didn't have the right, the statutory right to holiday. But the fall in working hours meant an increase in leisure time. And this creates um, industries based around leisure pursuits. Cinema, popular sports, uh, the dance hall, greyhound racing. In, 19, in, in the 1930s, greyhound racing after football is the second most popular participatory sport in, uh, in Great Britain. Um, some it was, it was phenomenally, uh, phenomenally uh, popular. In places like Walthamstow, dog tracks, and White City, uh, being kind of epicenters of of, of the sport. Um, and of course, leisure time meant uh, a greater um, focus on the domestic sphere, on private life. These are trends which really intensify. After World War Two, the 1950s uh, sees this huge explosion in uh, this this notion of the return to the private world, where people have more disposable income and they can do things in their homes. They can um, uh, focus on the, the garden or the allotment, um, and there is um, a greater uh, interest in uh, in these sorts of things, and of course, a great greater leisure time. Most working class people didn't exist in quite the same economy as the middle classes. Working class um, ownership of bank accounts is relatively rare. Savings are done through what, was, what we refer to as the friendly societies, um, which were uh, savings clubs, where um, the, the friendly society collector would come door to door and take uh, cash um, saving as well, cash from uh, householders uh, each week um, and there would be um, a pay book and people could draw out of the fund uh, when, when they needed to. Um, uh, life insurance policies uh, were on, worked on, on the same basis. So the, um, there, there was a, a, quite a, a kind of a, a working class culture of uh, self-provision for um, ill health, for uh, sudden death, for um, uh, the, the the needs are, are, that would normally be supplied after the war by a national health service. Um, the average weekly household income was something like about four pounds, um, but 
the ability to save and the ability to put money away uh, was fairly, fairly limited. Um, Two-thirds of adults who died in Britain in 1934, for example, left total assets, that's cash and valuables and property and everything else, uh, of less than £100. Throughout the country, working-class home ownership remained very, very rare. Home ownership for a tiny proportion of the working class was seen, uh, and rightly so, uh, as being the uh, ladder out of uh, poverty and destitution. Um, the better paid working classes could afford um, the rents that were needed uh, to be paid on one of the new suburban estates, um, where a million new council homes have been built since 1918 in uh, Lloyd George's post-war drive for kind of homes for heroes, which sort of both did and didn't really e- emerge. Um, the majority of working-class families uh, lived in the urban heartlands, um, many in sort of densely packed uh, terraced houses. You can just think of the kind of the east end of London or the docks of Liverpool uh, or here in Cardiff, uh, the, the, the Dockland uh, districts. Um, which serviced the the great coal port that is now Cardiff Bay. Um, those sorts of communities were the, still the kind of the epicenters of, of of working class life. They were close to mills and factories, and of course docks, um, and clustered along streets uh, that were full of uh, rich in in kind of social life. Um, Often there was little room indoors in fairly cramped houses, so uh, people uh, partly lived and carried out their social lives in in the street. Um, And there was a a kind of a a sense of solidarity. Um, Part of the reason for that was that, um, not necessarily that that working-class people are any more gregarious or friendly than anybody else flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company united healthcare insurance plans offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more one of these plans may be right for you if you're say between jobs coming off your parents plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. But the but the communities that were um, forced to live together or kind of crammed into uh, small districts had to have a way of um, socially regulating themselves, that um, everybody knew everybody's business, and that people who transgressed uh, against sort of social or behavioural norms um, were either faced the kind of the disapproval of the community, or they uh, or or, or um, their behaviour was uh, resolved in uh, other ways. Uh, I'll give you a personal example, a story of my grandmother who uh, lived in Stockport uh, along with um, uh, her family um, and my grandfather who worked as a milliner um, and then, uh, then in the, the hat-making uh, business, um, you know, on the, on the factory floor. Um, one evening she recounted the story of how uh, a man who was known to hit his wife on the street um, was it was talked about for a long long time until uh, the women of the street went round they all took their biggest uh, stainless steel pans uh, and went round to his house and beat the living daylights out of him um, and there was, it was seen as uh, there to be no need to call the police, no need to deal with outsiders. The community took care of its own business. Uh, and this is the sort of um, tight-knit culture that tight-knit communities and physically, um, uh, phys- physically cramped communities tended to, to create. Um, so it is, it, uh, Daniel Tobin refers to it as a, neighbor, a, a, a neighborliness that was as supportive as it was intrusive. Um, and it was much missed by the emigrants to the new estates. So people who um, left this lifestyle, who left these communities, often felt you know, they had moved to nicer accommodation in new uh, council estates, but often felt lonely often felt uh, that they had um, been removed from their community. After the Second World War, uh, the bombed-out districts of places like the the East End of London or uh, the the Docklands of Liverpool uh, saw uh, large amounts of slum clearances and these um, terrorist communities uh, lost forever and families who were moved out to new towns and estates um, far away from where they were, um, uh, they were originally from often found it very, very difficult to cope with uh, life without the extended family and the community. Working class women um, worked before marriage, uh, and the uh, reason why they were so uh, able to find work was that uh, particularly the new manufacturing industries had a huge thirst for cheap non-unionised labour and this gave the opportunity 
for young women particularly to increase their spending power um, and have and it also gave them an alternative to domestic service and domestic service was by far the most hated um, profession uh, that working class people could find themselves in it was uniformly resented um, and uh, but for particularly for working class women was by the 1930s the biggest source of employment in, in, in the country and I think something very interesting begins to happen in the, the 1920s and the 1930s that um, young unmarried women who were normally in sweated labour or in service have disposable income perhaps really for the first time um, and as a result, were able to make choices and decisions and access uh, consumer goods and pleasures that they had never experienced before. The uh, enjoyment of being able to go out for a uh, uh, go out to a music hall or go out for a dance to a dance hall or go to the cinema, um, and it meant that there were alternatives to um, the pressure to quickly marry and have children. Of course, um, women did quickly marry by, you know, and marry early, particularly working-class women marry early in the 1930s. But very often what you tend to find is social and political change um, takes a decade or two to gestate. And so... The social changes of the 1950s, uh, the 1930s, um, really begin to manifest themselves after the Second World War, perhaps in the, the 50s and, and, and the 1960s, um, when people are able to look at one or two generations worth of, um, of, of, of positive change. Marriage and motherhood, writes Daniel Tobin, meant withdrawal from the formal economy to the hard toil of washing, cooking, cleaning and child-rearing. The time that allowed middle-class women to volunteer their efforts to good causes was run for them by, the, by their employment of working-class cooks and maids. Working-class families were smaller than they had been a generation before, but they remained typically larger than those of the middle class. Relatively few working-class children were educated beyond the senior classes of elementary school. The declining number who won a grammar school scholarship in competition against the offspring of the sharp-elbowed lower middle class gained a passport to the ranks of clerkdom or industrial expertise. But most families thought it better for their children to get jobs rather than ideas above their station. So there was a great deal of my, sort of internal migration across Britain in the 1930s as a result of the decline of traditional industries. Um, people flowed from uh, old manufacturing heartlands towards new factories in central and southern England. Here again in Wales, there was uh, a, a, a migration um, down what would now be the M4 corridor towards London. Uh, and the, the commuter towns on the edges of London, Reading, Slough and places like that, where light manufacturing um, and uh, light industry could be found, 
There were significant numbers of Welsh families uh, who moved there from the poverty-stricken Welsh valleys where the coal mining industries had collapsed to find uh, new opportunities in uh, any kind of work that was available and that would actually turn out to be kind of uh, easier and less arduous work than, than coal mining. It's important, of course, not to see working class life as um, homogenous, um, that there were various different working classes in Great Britain and working classes who didn't necessarily look upon one another entirely favourably all the time. And once again, Daniel Topman writes, Regionally, working class lives differed dramatically between the long-apprenticed, highly skilled pits, factories and slipways of the traditional staple industries and the more antiseptic assembly lines of the new industries with fewer skilled workers and the most rustic and the more uh, the most rustic countryside where an aging population was isolated from both the hum of the city and the boons of mains water and electricity locally working class neighborhoods were often separated by distinctions between the self-consciously respectable church or chapel going sober and law-abiding, and those they thought rough, poorer, less observant, harder drinking, and probably headed for a bad end. The key distinction in working-class life was the extent of union membership and employment. Trade unions were the, uh, the most fundamental aspect of working-class organisation, uh, political and economic, um, but they were important aspects of working class social life. Um, they were um, a, a means of uh, distributing um, for working class people education, uh, leisure activities, um, aspects of social welfare uh, and workplace representation. Um, they formed, the, obviously, a fundamental part of the Labour movement alongside um, the Labour Party and the cooperative movement. And the union leaders uh, were, you know, far more important national figures than they are, than they are now. They, they're people such as Walter Citrine, who was the General Secretary of the, TG, the, the Trade Union Congress, uh, and Ernest Bevin, head of the Transport and General War Workers Union. Um, and in some aspects of the economy, um, there was a, a, a kind of a, a divide between those workers who were uh, employed, those workers who had um, lost their jobs during the Great Depression and never really regained them. And it's important sometimes not to overstate the extent of working class solidarity. Um, there was, uh, there, there were among some portions of the employed working classes, uh, a, an idea that um, really um, those who had been left behind or those who had lost their jobs, whilst it was unfortunate, um, they had to look after themselves. Or there was um, among some working class, some employed working class people um, uh, a, um, a, a kind of an, a suspicion of the the, the marches um, the people who took part in the uh, hunger marches of the early 1930s that said 
there was obviously an immense degree of uh, compassion and solidarity and sympathy, and it was normally working class communities that came out to meet the Jarrow marches and the other hunger marches uh, in the first half of the uh, of the nineteen thirties. Anyway, we're going to continue looking at um, Britain during the nineteen thirties um, and gradually work towards our understanding of uh, the British the, the social context of Britain on the eve of the Second World War. Thanks very much, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Do remember to support our Patreon if you can, and um, have yourselves a great week, and we'll uh, broadcast you again at some point in the, uh, the, the next seven days. All the best. Bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.